Act 4, Scene 8. The chorus narrates stanzas as personal soliloquies. Voices alternate to speak them, now a woman, now a man, or a child. Sometimes they combine in unison to speak. When the stage empties, a gigantic movie screen is lowered. You can hear squeaky wheels of the pulleys as it is slowly let down. All the lights go out, and immediately in a sepia-tented cinema, dusty and scratched from its age, you see the scrolling title and credits for the travelogue of Faustus' Journey to Paradise. Starring Faustus and Alexander, produced and directed by Mephistopheles. Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet Suite No. 2 is the dominant soundtrack. All speech appears in subtitles. traveler does not travel anywhere. The world around him changes. When he wakes, when he looks up from coffee, speaks to his wife. The traveler does not know his friends, does not see his enemies. They disappear behind his path like objects swallowed in a fog. The traveler has no family, no child or wife. His lover is embraced just once. The traveler witnesses in silence as his companion speaks incessantly. The companion talks and does not see. The traveler sees and does not talk. His companion is forever lonely. The traveler belongs. The companion is afraid. The traveler does not fear or blame. Bridging time is bridging space beyond the brink, beyond the solid body, beyond our being. Bridging time, the body passes past, through this immediate wall, which yields immaterial, which holds us behind that to which we cling. None knows what lies beyond, we fear to go. 
we will cling to continuity against the change that we deny for constancy, which we need. Changes are the tumult in the chasm of time over which we wish we could find a bridge. Bridging time will bridge the gaping space, will make space thin, and the wall a skin between what comes and what has been. And we, like chrysalis shivering within, peer through the resilient membrane. The temporal breath spreads, swells, and in suspense lofts and catches it, and space leaps out from inside of us, the technic of this metamorphosis, which carries us to what our other is. One moment is a lifetime to another. The companion sees the end of self, while the traveler is constant and sees the same wide horizon he's always seen. Alexander walks to paradise and takes Faustus so they will not separate as bodies will when they depart, as particles go individually like mists blown up by wind. They gained one year for every mile or nearly so, and when they'd entered Jerusalem, they had descended to that day, that very hour of Christ's passion. The streets were busy with the holiday, clamoring for entry to the temple. Pilgrims of the God of Abraham brought their lambs for slaughter. Sacred blood of lambs slathered the marble floors and poured by runnels to chambers hidden below, collecting and coagulating in ghastly subterranean show. Few knew, fewer cared, that somewhere died a man who's called a king of Jews, but Faustus knew. He saw the darkness gathering portentously, and saw the horses shied, how birds dared not to fly, how winds had died. The sun was cold. It was the day. The universe will mourn.
Alexander knew nothing of what it was, but followed Faustus where he went, who spoke to beggars and to the lepers whom others loathed, thinking they would have heard of him who was their only hope. He spoke the Aramaic, which he had learned, as well as common Greek. He asked for him, or Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But they did not know his name. They knew that someone, unnamed, had yesterday been taken to be crucified. They were afraid to speak, and Faustus stirred suspicions and misgivings by his urgency, his questioning, and his accent. Alexander saw and warned him, pulling him aside and pointing to idleness gathering mischief. But Faustus, in his obsession, was reckless and dismissive, and remembering from books, he thought he'd read the location of Golgotha. He got directions to that horrid place from a money-changer at the temple. Faustus led, while Alexander warily guarded, watching those who gathered at a distance to follow the doctor with malicious intent. Where Golgotha is today, the city thrives, but then it was a hill beyond all dwellings, a place for executions where no one came except to scavenge corpses that there hanged. In the foreboding gloom, as clouds cast darkening, the air itself was stifling, damp, suffocating, cloth. No one stood there about, nor had any soldiers stayed. Everyone had gone away. Christ was hung upon his cross, dying or perhaps was dead. He looked more frail than Faustus had supposed. He was naked, filthy, and when he looked at Faustus he seemed like any man not more divine than he himself. Yet even in his pain he asked Faustus for his name, then did not speak again. In sympathy Faustus felt his pain, but knew no means to comfort him, or means to surcease further agony. The flesh within those palms which nails pierced, had cankered, seeped piteously, and dejected, defeated, and despairing, hooked painfully by those hopeless wounds. He looked at Faustus, and eyes clairvoyant, reflecting Faustus' own, saw his death coming, as Faustus saw his in the other's clearly certain. Thus, speechless he wept for him and for himself. But Christ said nothing and turned away and looked up to where from clouds the thrashing rain began and wind came violent, merciless, and cold. The day became the night. A woman wailed, though not for Jesus, but for a thief who died beside him, 
low on this hill. No fabled witness heard his last words. Not a disciple, not brother, not mother. None but Faustus and perhaps Alexander, who stood away near to the city's gate, prepared to protect his grieving friend from sinister waiting watching fiends, some who'd followed when he came, some who kept a vigil for petty gain. He died of cold more than of pain, heart stopped and breath escaped like any man. He sighed, and what he said before he died, Faustus will not say. Upon his death the watching returned, as if they'd feared his eyes or words, and had been waiting for his death to take his clothes and other things that littered the cross atop the hill, a cup, some bread, a sponge, a spear. Alexander saw this wickedness creep, crouched approaching like supplicants in dread, in loathing, and ashamed, like ones who fed on flesh of dead men. He hurried Faustus to take the road, who did not want to leave, but looked back mournfully on the death he'd witnessed and made pathetic protests concerning the man's burial, while Alexander drew his sword to halt these necrophagophiles, who would Faustus' life steal for the trite value of his shirt. At the sharp blade they balked, Faustus withdrew and was tugged off. Fade out, fade in. The cinema has changed from sepia to lushly vivid technicolor. Symphonic music swells enormously in an orchestra of violins and horns, announcing in Gothic script passage to Egypt. To hasten their declination of time, Reversing sky, the sun backing down to dawn each day, and stars wheeling the other way round, they took to sea. Sailing from the shore of Syria, they sailed precisely the miles and days to coincide with history, to recapitulate, to debark by synchronicity upon the place that would become the city of Alexandria. The world restored, renewed, and the sun shall set west, as all men knew it should. Separating there, Faustus went to the newly dedicated library, while Alexander mustered his army, to recommit himself in quest for Godhead, to travel west to Siwa, 
and its sacred oasis, temple of reed and leaf, where the sun Amun reclines, and priests lean to listen to his dreams. There he will be told the secret meaning of his life, that none may believe but he. Was he deceived, we wonder, mistreated by his enemy, disguised to tell him truth, telling falsehoods maliciously, avenging humiliation and defeat ironically, or was it true? Is there destiny for each of us? Think of yourself. What were the words that changed your life, which spoken ended at once that to which you belonged, made all your previous life as if it had not ever been? But think again. Did your life truly end? Your life, again, had started on another path. If not meant to be, it was the same as destiny. Though not intended, it was as meant to be. The tunnel of traveling light from caves of far space comes this moment into your eyes, causes you to see either shadows or substances, both illusions of reality. And the children that you have, your love, your death, the coincident, your intentions, the fell or wanted. What choices have you made that you may deny? Faustus helped Egyptian librarians to compile the numberless books put to endless shelves in the forsaken palace of their forgotten king, for whom the riches of the world no longer meant a thing, and were displaced by tomes of wisdom he'd never imagined. The corridors took hours to traverse, and looking down its main advance, the walls converged at distant space as to the final end of man in time, and it became the smallest speck. Or so it seemed, no matter how far he walked, while looming to the right and left towered walls of literature, ancient even in those ancient days. And none of these do now survive, burned by zealots in later centuries. Faustus did not leave. He harbored in this cove of books for many months at the shore of its unknown continent, which so vast surprised, which each new day brought rare discoveries, like forests found mountains met and taken, 
cities sighted. He read each day another book or two or three. As quickly as he could consume them, anguished, he would never know what all of them contained. He found a book of worlds. It told a time when all was sea across the globe and men lived in one great island that had a day for half the year and endured a night much the same, who carried liquid light in bowls and set them out in furrows across their fields so grain would grow, and they could live as men with wholesome bread. They sailed the seas, taught others to build, or so it was said, though all of these, according to them, were naked as mere animals and ate raw flesh and did not speak in words. He found a book of time. It told of worlds that can't be seen, where the moment here is a moment there, where moments elastically flux from here to there, where moments are not now, nor have, not ever been, where no moments are at all, but are one last breath, long-held, long-lasting, to never end. He found a book of stars. It told of nights when all the sky was skewed and stars aligned in other ways than what we know, for which Faustus did compute some billion years ago it might have been. Orion raised his sword, and Draco roamed, and Cygnus flew and fled the sky, and one star brighter than all the rest would never be seen again. He found a book of objects that no one ever made, machines consuming fire, boxes holding emptiness but full of light, and globes of water and iridescent shells and bright, an object that will destroy the world with all its might, objects that would speak, objects that will paint, will sculpt and shape, objects that heal, objects that give food and drink. He found a book of wisdom whose words he could not comprehend. It was a map of consciousness and illustrated what is real. Layered, laid over on itself, complex, manifold, puzzling and complected, like folds of time, blurs of motion, or shards, or fractal planes, liquid in their solid being, blent-colored or hard-edged, overlapping or falling away radically at estranged angles, or curved, a twist, or looped. Realms he could not conceive, but profound and certain to be found, each as it seemed. And it haunted him as memory. He could not immediately recall. This map unfolded from its book in fifteen lengths and fifteen widths, and when it's laid onto the floor, spreads from wall to wall and a little more. He had to stand upon a ladder high above the shelves to take it in, 
and other scholars there had said they'd seen the book, but none of them could say from whence it came or what it meant. It was the teaching of a sage who had not left his name. When Alexander returned, he did not recognize Faustus, but called him Clasthenes, mistaking him for an historian and his old friend. It pleased Faustus to take this disguise, and ironically he would read in some eighteen centuries what this author, he himself, wrote in Alexander's Histories. As time climbed down the stairway to the past, and so reversed five years, now it ascended in the opposite way and would regress to the same degree. The number of years lost. Thus, once Faustus had returned, only so many months would have gone, although in the common experience it should be counted one year times ten. Alexander was illuminated by visions from his desert that no man survives. Where sand is water in a timeless sea, he changed. He no longer doubted. His intentions became his deeds to think, to act, courageous and resolute, to think, to act, indifferent as the sun, regardless as wind, constant as the sky. Darius, who was the Persian king in Persepolis, held court before his chamberlains, who tactfully described the conquests made by Alexander across the eastern realm, Egypt fallen, Jerusalem entire, and now Greek troops advanced and threatened birthlands of his sire. His couriers called him brigand, boy, mocked his speech and barbaric dress. They outnumbered him and would easily destroy his army, slay him, or take him prisoner alive. But Alexander was the victor. The Persians, who had ruled this ancient land, the first in all the world, fled cowardly. Or if they stayed, were killed brutally. Darius was left by his soldiers and his kin, and escaped, but intercepted by his own guard, was stabbed and left to die in plundered husk of his once royal train. He was found where he had dragged himself, to the muddy waterside where his horses, freed by his assassins, had gone loitering to drink. With his stomach wounds, he could not quench his thirst. 
They tormented him. He begged the Greek, who found him for a merciful death. But the soldier knew him by his clothing, ran, and hurried Alexander there to see. If anyone should kill him, it should be he. But when Alexander had come, he was already dead. Faustus by his side observed the mud about the dead king's mouth. Alexander left him with this command, No one shall bury him.